Well, it's not too bad in this service, but the other ones uh, were just a bit thinner, uh, and, and it always is that way. The Sunday after Easter, or really toward the end of April, the snowbirds, who have already, many of them have said goodbye to me, are, are already leaving. In fact, I, I love it when people from Arizona tell me that it's really not all that hot in May. And I sit there and go, well, there's like hundreds of people that disagree with you from our church. And they're back up to their places up north. And you know what? We can bless them by praying for rain for them and serves them right for leaving us. I said that in the last service and one of the wonderful snowbirds came up to me of Minnesota and he said, hey, I'm okay. Just don't pray for snow. He said with the winter that we've had. And so I, the reason I, I mention all that is, is not to pick on our snowbirds. We love them. But I, I do give a lot of thought as uh, we go into May and June and, and, and such as, as to what we teach on. And though I'd like to think that whatever we teach on here is, is relevant and biblical and, and what have you, I kind of reserve some of my more, if you will, fun teaching, at least for me, uh, for these months. For, for those of you that I fondly call the remnant and, and, and allow you to, to have some fun with me in this series, what Jesus said is really going to be an amazing series, and not because of me or Neil's going to teach a couple of these. It's because of Jesus. And we're going to take a look at some topics that are very near to your everyday world, things like worry, anger, success, <clears throat> the poor, uh, heaven, things that we all think of or things that are around us. And, and we're going we're gonna to confine ourselves in a good way to what Jesus said about them. And, and I think you're going to find it really, really helpful for your life. And, and I also felt very led, because I've done these series before. I did one in Cleveland a few years back. Uh, but one of the things new about this series for you guys is I've never started it off like we're going to today where I ask you the question first, do you really want to hear what Jesus had to say? And you'll see what I mean by that, because I don't think most people know what he really said about things. And we're going to give you a flyover today so that you can count the cost before you summit the mountain of his words and ask yourself, do you really want to hear this? Because I think it's a good place to start. So let's pray, and then we're going to dive right in. Father, I thank you for your goodness and for your grace. I thank you for this day that we are commissioning our missions teams, uh, hundreds of people going to, to dozens of nations and places. And I pray, God, that as we have, that you would bless them and bless us as we track them and support them and encourage them. God, may we be missionaries in our setting here as well as we even embark on this series, what Jesus said. May we talk these things up with those around us as we'll see in a second, even those that might not know Jesus but are really interested in him. And I pray these things in Christ's name. <clears throat> Amen. So what did I mean by that last phrase in my prayer, those who might not know Jesus but are interested in him? We live in very unique times uh, today in our culture, 21st century American culture, and here's what almost every demographer, every culture watcher points out, and that's that people aren't as interested today in organized religion. We all probably have picked up on that. But that doesn't mean that they're not interested in spirituality. And there's a difference in our culture today. So, for instance, in a recent poll, they found that 33% of Americans identify themselves as SBNR, spiritual but not religious. 
That's kind of a popular phrase among people in our culture today. Many of you have heard this next stat. When it comes to young people, those under 30, uh, now it's upwards of 20%, one in five, identify themselves as none, N-O-N-E, meaning when asked about their spirit or their religious identification, they say, I have none. Uh, It's never been that high in the history of the United States. It's true. People are not as interested in organized religion, uh, but every poll shows that they're still very interested in spirituality. Uh, A recent Harris poll found that more than three-quarters of Americans still believe in God when asked, and and this might surprise you, two-thirds of Americans when polled and asked if Jesus, and I quote, is the Son of God, two-thirds said yes. This will offend some of you, but I I thought this was actually kind of classic. In a recent public policy poll, uh, they found that Jesus is the second most popular person in America today. And you're saying, how did that happen? Uh, Well, they they polled Americans on a bunch of people from history and said, would you give them a favorable rating? And 90% of Americans gave Jesus a favorable rating only to be beaten by Abraham Lincoln, who who got a 91% favorable rating. And though some of you as evangelical Christians go, that really offends me, I would argue that for a post-Christian, post-modern, increasingly secular society where people aren't into religion anymore, that's actually not too bad, that they're still interested in Jesus and what he had to say. And so you and I live in a world today where though your friend might not be impressed, that you go to Scottsdale Bible Church because that would represent institutional religion for them. The reality is is that they are probably somewhat open to Jesus and and what he had to say. And the good news is, is that so are you. Now, before we do a deep dive into what Jesus had to say about the topics before us, topics, as I said, like anger and worry and success, I do want us to wrestle with the question today whether you are an institutional church guy or not, do we really want to hear what Jesus had to say? Because as I've been a pastor now for a very, very long time, I got to tell you, when I hear people say to me that they don't like the church, but they do like Jesus, I'll ask them a very innocent question, well, what is it that you like about Jesus? And when they give me their description of Jesus, I kind of smile to myself and think, I don't think you've read the Gospels. I don't think that your image of Jesus is the image that we have from the historical documents because the things that he said are incredibly challenging. And before we dive into them, you got to ask yourself, do I really want to hear? So here's what I want to do today. Before we look at what Jesus has to say about worry and heaven and the poor and all that, I want to give you a brief flyover using three distinct categories that we're all familiar with, the categories of relationality, spirituality, and then your personal life. And I'm going to show you through this brief flyover what Jesus said, uh, really, about these topics, and quite frankly, how hard-hitting, how out of nowhere his statements were. And I'm not going to do it to try to convince you to not believe what Jesus said. Obviously, I'm a pastor who follows Jesus. But I just want us to count the cost and see his sayings for what they are so that we can be prepared to summit the mountain over the next few weeks uh, without getting bogged down by, quite frankly, uh, some hard sayings of Jesus. So what am I talking about? First, notice with me that what Jesus has to say is relationally challenging. 
In other words, Jesus spent a lot of his teaching challenging people around him, as well by extension you and me, uh, in their relational base. He was constantly pushing and prodding people to consider their relational priorities, their relational focus, uh, where their relational identity is found, both in light of God as well as those around them. And you're saying, like what? Uh, Look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 and 37. These are some sayings of Jesus. Uh, Look up here on the screen. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come not to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And just not keeping it at kind of the cerebral conceptual level, two chapters later, Jesus tests his own teachings in this scenario. Look at Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. It says, while he was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and mother. Folks, these are very challenging words. In fact, I rarely hear a Mother's Day sermon on these passages, right? It would like kill Mother's Day to try to preach out of this. Or how about all these sermons that we do on family nowadays? It's been really vogue in churches to do series on the family. I've listened to lots of them. No one ever touches these passages. It wouldn't be really uplifting to talk about families this way. And yet Jesus meant every one of these words. Obviously, in the context here, what Jesus is saying is that when it comes to our relational base, you've got to get your priorities right. And you need to make sure that God is first place in your relational life, what Lewis called first place things and second place things. It's just that Jesus adds a little bit more here, and you caught it, and he said, and there's going to be times in life where it's going to even have to exclude, because of the nature of your relationships in a fallen world, exclude even family members. You counting the cost? Do you really want to hear what Jesus had to say to us? And what you need to know is that statements like these found in Matthew here are not one-offs by Jesus when it comes to relationships. He did this stuff all the time. They're actually the norm. Even some of your most beloved stories, when you look closely at them, have some really relationally challenging things in them. Consider the woman at the well. We all love that story. John chapter 4, this woman's at the well. She's a Samaritan woman. Most men wouldn't talk to her. The disciples are away in town getting some food. Jesus talks with this woman. He talks to her about how we need to worship in spirit and truth and how he has living water to give to us. And it's just a wonderful story. But have you ever read what happens halfway through the story? Look up here on the screen, John 4, 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you have right now is not your husband. What you have said is true. That's an awkward moment between Jesus and this woman. (laughs) I mean, I've been a pastor for a while now, and if I tried to pull that one in my office, that would be an awkward moment. Yeah, what you're saying is true. You've been divorced five times, and you're shacking up with somebody you shouldn't right now. Let that one sit with somebody for a minute. 
But that was Jesus. He did stuff like that all the time. And it wasn't for shock value. He was pushing people in their relational base. How about the woman caught in adultery? We all love that story in John 8, uh, where this woman's caught in adultery. She's dragged before Jesus, and it's to test the Pharisees. And Jesus says in front of the Pharisees, hey, let him who is without sin cast the first stone, and the Pharisees walk away. But have you ever read the end of the story? Uh, Look at what happens. John 8, verses 10 through 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. (laughs) Can you imagine if I left every one of my appointments this week with those three words? (laughs) Hey, good to be with you, Howard. Sin no more. I I mean, that's just, again, that was Jesus. I mean, even this woman who, who he freed up, he's basically saying, you've been sleeping around. You've been having an affair. I know your marriage is bad. You're having an affair. Don't do that. That's what Jesus did. And again, these are not one-offs. These are the norm. He told his disciples, whoever wishes to be the greatest is going to become the least. At one point, he called Peter Satan. And he said, get behind me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. He said to all of us that if you don't forgive people around you, God will not forgive you. Wow, how do you make sense of that one? He meant it. When he defined love, he said, a new commandment I give you, love everybody around you in every single relational interaction you have, you better be loving them. Larry Crabb takes that soul to heart that he defines love as this, love is putting Christ on display in the way that you relate to others. I mean, Jesus pulled no punches when he spoke to us about his relational life. And again, the only reason I bring that up to you is for you to ask the question as we go into the series, do you really want to hear what he had to say? Because it's not what many people think. It was really hard-hitting stuff. And now hang on to that category. knows me a second category. And if you thought this first one was challenging, hang on to your pew or cactus and venue. Hang on to your seat. Uh, Because what Jesus had to say to us is spiritually challenging. What do I mean by that? It's a fascinating story in Luke chapter 9. There's a point where Jesus, and and I love how the gospel writers put this, he says he's just walking down the road with a bunch of his followers, not just the 12, but even more. And you can almost picture the scene where there's this one very passionate follower. All of us know somebody like that. And in one excitable moment, he says to Jesus, I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, well, it's a little bit harder than you think. You know, the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head. So he's kind of challenging him, make sure he's sure. And then the text says that he looked at another follower and essentially said, what about you? Are you going to follow me also? And the guy was really honest. He said, yes, but my dad recently passed away and I need to plan his funeral and give the guy a decent burial. And look at how Jesus responds. Look at Luke 9, 60 to 62. It says, and Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. Skip the funeral. Skip the goodbyes. Come and follow me. And I love it. Aren't pastors weasels? When I hear them speak on this passage, a lot of pastors try to say, well, he really didn't mean that they couldn't bury their dead. It's just kind of figurative. And he wasn't really saying goodbye. What he really meant was just kind of get on with it and don't waste any time. And I say, they go, no, that's not what he meant. He meant it. I mean, put yourself in their shoes back then. 
He was literally saying, skip the funeral. If you're going to follow me, follow me. Kyle Eiderman wrote a book a couple years ago that I thought was classic. He said, Jesus isn't looking for fans, he's looking for followers, right? The book was called, I'm Not a Fan. And the reality is, is that Jesus isn't looking for the faint-hearted to follow him. He's looking for those who really mean business. And sometimes in life, it's going to be tested. And again, when it comes to our spiritual life, Jesus did things like this all the time. He told us that you need to take up our cross and die to ourselves and follow him. Have you ever read what he said about sin? He said that if your hand or foot causes you to sin, what are you to do? Yeah. Most of us say, well, slap it, slap it, and tell it not to do that anymore. He said, no, cut it off. He says, if your eye causes you to sin, what are you to do? Yeah, we think, I'll oh, put a patch on it. No, gouge it out. And have you ever finished that passage? Why did Jesus, or what was his logic behind that? His logic is actually scary. He said, because it would be better to enter heaven missing a limb or an eye than to go to hell with all of your members intact. He really said that. You can read about it yourself in Matthew 18. I never hear people preach on that passage. He said that those who call him Lord, Lord, not everybody who does that is going to go to heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father, which kind of connotes that, that talk is cheap and actions speak louder than words. He said, my real followers and will, will, and I quote, obey all my commands, all of them. I mean, again, when Jesus talked to us about our lives, they were really hard-hitting stuff. I said this earlier, kind of, but I love when people say to me that they hate church, but they love Jesus. Because I think to myself, I ask them, well, what is it about what Jesus said that you love? And no one ever points to these verses. They say, we know Jesus is so cool. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Good, you've gone to a football game. Have you read the rest of the Gospels? Because what Jesus said, like, I mean, it's all over the place, was really difficult stuff. You would think that the way some of us paint the picture of Jesus today, he was this wonderful Gandhi-like mystic walking around Palestine making everybody feel good about themselves. That wasn't Jesus. Not at all. He came to relationally and then spiritually push every button in us. And he did it so well. In fact, he did it so well that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, put him on a cross. And though that was part of God's plan, they didn't know that. Their motivation was, we just got to shut this guy up because we don't like what he's saying. Do you? Do you really want to hear what Jesus had to say? And then, if you're still not convinced, notice with me a third category. And this one really hits home to us. And that is that what Jesus had to say is personally challenging. You're saying, what do you mean by personally by personally challenging, I mean that Jesus spoke direct and hard-hitting words into our personal, private lives. Now, don't miss this, guys, to the point that almost every aspect of your life was, remained, was, was touched by Jesus' words. Your marriage, your pocketbook, your gifts and your talents, your jobs and your vocations. And so at one point in his earthly ministry, Jesus was rubbing shoulders with a wealthy, aristocratic leader within the vast Roman uh, Greco-Roman Empire back then, and this seeker was really interested, as many are today, in Jesus. And so as he's interacting with him, he said, that he asked a $10 question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how do I get to heaven? 
And Jesus essentially said to him, we'll start with the Ten Commandments. Things like avoiding adultery, murder, stealing, lying, don't diss your mom and dad. And the guy said, I've been doing that since I was a kid. And listen to what Jesus says next. Look up here on the screen, Matthew or Luke 18, verse 22. It says, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. We just did a capital campaign. We didn't touch that verse. Did you notice that? That doesn't preach well. Even in a Scottsdale context, it doesn't preach well. I mean, how do you apply that verse? It's a scary verse. I mean, those of us seeing those words of Jesus here in Scottsdale, where we've been incredibly blessed, honestly should be asking ourselves, could that have been me? Is that what Jesus would say to me if I was here today? And just to add some clarity to this, because I, I think I understand that, that saying of Jesus, uh, what Jesus is saying there is that if you're the type of person that follows him or wants to follow him, but you're doing so simply through hiding behind the commandments, a rule-centered life, just kind of doing the good, right thing, but you haven't abandoned all of you are to Jesus, he's going to ask you that question. He's going to test your mettle. If you live an unabandoned life, he's going to say to you, are you willing to lay it all down? If you want to say, well, God, I go to church, and, and, and I give a little, and I serve, and I do my best to love my neighbor, he's going to say, big whip. Is your life submitted to me? And the biggest test of that is your pocketbook. So if your pocketbook isn't already submitted to him, he very well might say to you what he said to the rich young ruler because he wants it all. And again, when it came to our personal lives, uh, this is not a one-off. Uh, Jesus said about marriage that it's for a lifetime. Rarely is divorce permissible. In fact, what God has brought together, let no man separate or put asunder. He tells us that we've all been given certain talents and gifts from birth in life and not to waste them. But have you ever read the end of that passage? It's really hard hitting. He says, to everyone who has, he will be given more. But to the one who does not have, who wastes his talents, even what he has will be taken away. I said, I gotta go, what, what does he mean by that? What, taken away? What, what does he mean by that? At one point, Jesus sees Peter and Andrew working in their jobs. They're just minding their own business, being fishermen. And you remember what he said to him? Leave it all and follow me. And then he does the very next th same thing to John and James. And some of you say, well, that was the disciples. I mean, that was a unique call. Yeah, guess what? He gives a unique call to some of us today. My dad took me down to his law firm when I was 18 years old, tried to get me to go into corporate law, but I had already heard Jesus say to me, you will follow me into vocational ministry. And, and, and though I joyfully did it, I better have done it, amen, based upon the call. And there have been plenty of days after being with some of you that I've regretted that call. <laughs> and I've wondered, did I make a colossal mistake going into the ministry? I really have. I mean, I've gone home going, God, what in the world have I gotten myself into? And God says to me, hey, you left it all and you followed me. And guess what? He does that to you in many areas of your life. That's what God does. That's what Jesus does when he speaks into our personal life. Again, what he has to say is not for the faint-hearted. So add all this up, relational, spiritual, personal. You got this guy, Jesus. And we live in a day and age where people think that Jesus is great and church is not always that great. I get that.
But I got to ask, have we really looked at what Jesus said? And have we really counted the cost at climbing the Mount Everest of his words? It's a good thing to consider as we go into this series. Because though it sounds like I might be suggesting that we shouldn't place ourselves under the teachings of Jesus, you guys know me better than that. Of course I think we should. I'm simply trying to get us to see that we live in a world today, now don't miss this, in which many people who say Jesus is really cool, I think have a sanitized view of Jesus that sees him as some really awesome mystic walking around the Holy Land just trying to tell us really awesome things. And though what he did say was awesome, the reality is, is that what he said was really hard. I love how Tony Evans said it a few years ago. He said, Jesus didn't come to take an opinion poll. He came to take over. And it's true. Jesus spoke into every area of our lives, relationally, spiritually, and personally. And what he said was really challenging. And so let me wet your whistle very, very briefly here. I'll just, I'll, we're going to my sermon for next week on anger. And Jesus only spoke in one time in the Gospels directly to anger. And yet I'll just, I'm not going to tell you my outline or anything, but what he said about anger, you will never get on Oprah. What he said about anger, you're never going to get on Dr. Phil. Quite frankly, what he said about anger, you don't get in most sermons. What he said about anger is even different from what we find in the epistles or other parts of the scripture. What Jesus said about anger is so unique. And yet, here's my closing point to you today. If you are ready to hear what Jesus has to say, if you're counting the cost and you say, yeah, Jamie, I think I'm in. I want to hear what he has to say. Then get this. What Jesus has to say promises to bring life. Jesus said, for him who has ears to hear and eyes to see, if you understand what he says and lives it, it will bring life to your very soul. How do we know that? There's an interesting part in Jesus' ministry where, as you can imagine from what we've seen today, uh, there was a point where the people were really struggling with the severity of his teachings. And they were like going, well, this is just craziness. I mean, who can, who can live this stuff? And Jesus knew that. He's God in the flesh. He knew what they were thinking. And so look at how he wrapped up one particular set of difficult teachings in Luke 18, verses 29 to 30. This is great. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Latch on to that last part. Receive many more times, or many times more, in this time, here and now, as well as in the age to come, eternity. As far as I read it, guys, there, there's a double blessing there, amen? That if you and I will have the guts, the spiritual fortitude to listen to what Jesus says, and in this context coming up about anger, worry, success, those around us in need, heaven itself. In fact, I have a wonderful message for Father's Day as we wrap off this series in which I've entitled it, What Jesus Has to Say About You. And we're going to talk about what Jesus says about our individual lives and souls. If you will place yourself under his teachings, he promises as you hang in there, your soul will have life. I want to wrap up today by giving you a real-life example of this and, and something that happened to me this week with that. 
Uh, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus actually doesn't occur in the Gospels. It occurs in the, uh, uh, the book of Acts. It's a saying that almost all of you have heard. It's very, become very Americanized. I heard it even before I was a Christian. And yet, it's one that I, I don't think we've really given enough weight to as far as how difficult it is to live. It's found in Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Paul the Apostle is speaking, and he says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, now here it is, it is more blessed to give than to receive. How many of you have ever heard that phrase, it is more blessed to give than to receive? By the way, I can remember he was six years old, not even being raised in an overtly Christian home, and I said, why do I have to buy my sister a Christmas present? I asked my parents that. Like, she's not nice, I don't really like her, why should I buy her a Christmas present? And what do mom and dad say? It is more blessed to give than to receive, and so I did it. But over the years, we realize that that's a really tall order. I, I mean, we are so good, especially in American culture, at, at kind of clinging to our possessions, clinging to stuff, and we all tend to provide for ourselves first, and then at best, we give a little bit of overflow, and, and we kind of miss the whole point. That's not what Jesus meant. He, he meant radically give to others, and if you do that, there will be a blessing. We don't think there will be. We'll think we might feel good for being altruistic, but no, he means there's a real blessing in that. I got a great email this week, and I'm going to sit in the rocking chair. You'll see why here in a minute as I tell it to you. I got an email this week that um, I thought was, was a real great picture of this. I don't even need to introduce this email. You'll get it as we go along, but this made my week. He said, hi, Pastor Jamie. My name is Jared. I used to attend Fellowship Bible Church in Chagrin Falls, Ohio, when you were the senior pastor there. Our first interaction face-to-face -face was when you and your wife, Kim, hosted a young adult small group Bible study during FBC's 40 Days of Purpose campaign in the fall of 2004. I was working in Burton, Ohio at the time, and this small group at your house was my first interaction with young people at your church, and I've maintained those relationships today. While I was attending FBC, there came a time where you and Kim decided to update your living room furniture. Let me pause there. Kim decided to update our living room furniture. <laughs> he says, and you guys gave me your old couch and love seat, as well as a rocking chair, that I remember you being less than enthusiastic to give up. Now let me pause there again. I'm glad he noticed that because it was an awkward moment. We had about 30 young people in our house, and right in front of all of them, Kim said, hey, you know, take that couch, take that love seat, and you can have that rocking chair. You can see a picture on it behind, of, behind me. It was my mom's rocking chair. My wife's trying to give away my mom's rocking chair. I mean, that's not a good thing to do in marriage. And, and she did it in front of all of these people. And when I pushed back a little bit, because we had rocked our babies in this and all that, she gave me the look that I know after years of marriage. It was like, stop being so selfish and let it go. Okay, she's right. So I said, take the rocking chair. That's fine. <laughs> he says, I used the couch and the love seat for seven great years before I gifted them to a college student at my church who needed it, but I've held on to the chair. Now, this is where it gets profound. He says, this chair has been my quiet time chair for 10 years now. It's where I read my Bible each morning and start my day with prayer. I've had a lot of prayers answered while using your chair. I'm glad he gets things right. He says, God has led me to seminary in that chair. I graduated with an MDiv from Ashland Theological Seminary in 2009. I prayed for a job after seminary in that chair. I'm now in my fourth year as a youth pastor in Cambridge, Minnesota. 
I prayed for a wife in that chair. My wife Mallory and I will celebrate our second anniversary in May of this year, and I've prayed for children in that chair. We miscarried in 2013, but we're now eight weeks along in our second attempt. When Mallory and I got married, as you can guess, she had a lot of strong feelings about my bachelor furniture, and not all of it made it to our new home together, but the chair made the cut. Mallory likes the chair, and she sees it as the chair for rocking future babies in. In May of 2013, when we found out we were pregnant for the first time, Mallory underwent a project to update the chair. She stripped the stain off the chair, sanded it down, reinforced the seat and legs, and then refinished it in a dark walnut color. You can see the picture behind me. She also did away with the yellow plaid print cushions. This guy's way too in touch with his feminine side. And, and, got, <laughs> and got a more modern white gray zigzag pattern cushion. Okay, I get it. He says, as I sit in it every morning, it's hard not to be reminded of the miscarriage and the gut-wrenching emotions of heartache, but it's also hard to ignore the hundreds of other prayers said in this chair that have come true. I know you probably have a few stories of God's goodness and provision as a result of time spent praying in that chair. All right, guilt right there. And I just wanted to let you know of one more. Thanks again for the gift of the chair. It's a great chair and a great reminder of God's faithfulness. Have a great week. Sincerely, Jared. Wow. Yeah. I got to tell you, I I thought two things right away when I uh, got that email. The first thing I thought is it is more blessed to give than to receive. Amen? It really is. If I had known at that time and just hadn't got to look for my wife, but if I had known what God would do with that chair, I, I know my own heart. It, it can be hard sometimes, not that hard. I would have released it immediately. If God had tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you're done with that thing. This is going to be hugely a blessing to somebody else. I, I would have released that. I think we all would as followers of Jesus. When we know what God will do with our gifts, we, 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 we take hands off. We release them. But then the second thing I thought, and I don't mean to get down on myself for this. I really don't. But I thought it was just a chair. I mean, let's be honest, it wasn't all that sacrificial. I mean, it was, had some sentimental value, and in my selfishness, I might not have wanted to part with it, but it was just a chair. It, it, it was furniture that we weren't going to use as much anymore, and we, we gave it off to somebody. And here's what I thought with that, is that if God can use that kind of gift, imagine what he can do when it really is sacrificial. Imagine what God will do when you and I truly release things, not just from our past fruits, but from our first fruits. I had an amazing experience in my very first church. We went through a similar capital campaign like we're in right now at our church. And uh, one of the things we did is bought a bunch of new chairs for our, our, our little Baptist church there in Detroit. And it was a big expenditure for us. It was about 300 brand new chairs to replace those old, some of you remember, those old wood seat metal frame chairs, you know, that kind of rusted over the years, and we were updating those. And after about a week of getting our new chairs, we got a call from an inner city church uh, in Detroit that said, hey, we heard you got new chairs. Could we have the old ones? And I knew that we'd give them the old ones, but I actually went into the senior pastor's office. I was the associate pastor, and I said, hey, I got an idea. I I, I said, let's just do something radical. Instead of giving them the old ones, let's give them the new ones. 
And let's say to the congregation that we decided and felt led by God to give the new ones to somebody in need to model first fruits, and we don't mind sitting on the old ones. I thought that was an amazing idea. They, they didn't do it, but I thought it was a wonderful idea for us. I really wish I could say they did it, don't you? I do. I, I wish I could say that, 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 I mean, we took it to the board and we said yes, and there are all these businessmen and they love Jesus. Well, we're not going to do that. But I thought to myself, we should do that. I, I talked to Tom Sharda, our executive pastor, after this, and I said, dare we, in the midst of this campaign, dare we take something that we were going to buy for ourselves and at the last moment say, you know what, let's give it away. Let's give it away to some other church, and, and let's just continue to use, what, do you think, this, I mean, we're not all that dilapidated. Let's going to use some of the stuff we've been using for a while. I don't know what that'll be, uh, but wouldn't that just be awesome if we did something like that? Yeah. <laughs> I know some of you thinking right now, you're thinking, yeah, your salary. And so, okay, I got that. more blessed to give than to receive. Just one example, just one example of what it might mean for you and I to really put ourselves under the words of Jesus. And so as we go into this series, here's what I want you to do this week. Here's your homework. Please do ask yourself, um, do I really want to hear what he has to say? Because if you come back next week or listen next week, whatever, online, and say yes to that, I'm telling you, you're in for quite a ride. Because you've counted the cost. You're ready to say, I don't care what he says, I I'm in and I'm going to follow and he will bless you. Many of us need help with our anger. I do. We need help in our worry base. We need help in understanding what success is in our highly material, weird world. <laughs> we need help with the poor around us. We got them everywhere in this city. But we need help in understanding God and heaven. We need help in understanding ourselves. Jesus is going to help that. Help us there. But do we really want to hear what he has to say? I hope you do. Father, I pray that as we uh, think about that question this week and, and, and really ask the tough question of our lives, that we come back next week or prepare ourselves with, with a firm resolve to hear what you have to say. Because we know, Lord, at the end that as difficult and shocking as some of your words were, Jesus, that they are life-giving to our soul. We are blessed here as well as there in eternity. So God, as we ask that question, may we prepare our souls and our lives to be, to be rocked by you in good ways as we follow you. And I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together, amen. amen.